Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can even earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome our host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. How are you doing out there? I hope things are going well in your neck of the woods. Thanks for listening. Today, uh, I am honored to have Dr. Lindsay Davis, who is a Professor of Pharmacy Practice at the Western Midwestern in Glendale. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Davis. Hi, thanks for having me. So Dr. Davis is a cardiovascular expert, and uh, I am very grateful to have her on because we are talking about a new paper that was just recently published in The Lancet that takes a look at blood pressure control in patients who we'd probably count as the very elderly, right? So patients over age 80, though it did take a look at patients in different quantiles of ages. So, you know, as we know, the and I think, you know, for, for many of the more veteran listeners out there, the target for blood pressure has been a moving target. Certainly the entire time I've been a pharmacist, it seems like, you know, whatever the goal was was for blood pressure kind of went up and down and up and down and up and down. I'm old enough to remember back when uh, All Hat came out in 2004, and that kind of set everybody on kind of the course of 130 over 80. And JNC7, of course, made those recommendations, you know, and, and that was kind of like the standard for actually many years because of difficulties in, in getting a new set of guidelines out there. And so that was kind of the standard for a while. And then uh, there was some evidence to suggest that that was too liberal of a goal that we needed a tighter goals. And so uh, the Accord study came out in 2010, which looked at intensive blood pressure lowering in diabetic patients, and it actually didn't find a difference. And so that kind of surprised people. Um, and it was a study, they had about 5,000 patients in that study, uh, randomized to less than 120 as of a systolic versus standard blood pressure and lowering with a mean follow-up of about 4.7 years. And again, there was no significant decrease in the composite rate of fatal or non-fatal cardiovascular outcomes. Then there were several studies looking at uh, chronic kidney disease patients, including uh, the REN2 study that didn't find a difference. The ASK study also failed to show a difference in progression of kidney disease in, in, in African-Americans. And so based on all that, so you know, 130 over 80 was kind of the watchword for a while. And then the JNC-8 guidelines came out and said, well, no, actually, based on these new studies, maybe we can we don't have to be so quite tight in our blood pressure control. And, and they actually shot for a target of 140 over 90 in many patients with, with a diastolic of uh, 85 or less in patients with, with diabetes. So that was kind of the standard for a very short period of time. And then, of course, the SPRINT study came out. And the SPRINT study was, at, as I still think it is now, one of the largest studies ever done in blood pressure patients. And it was a, a wide-ranging study that took a look at intensive blood pressure control, again, versus standard blood pressure control. And unlike these other previous studies, in fact, did find a benefit in cardiovascular outcomes in patients with tighter blood pressure control. So here we go again, where the latest set of guidelines from the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, now all kind of gone back to less than 130 over 80. And and one of the things that the new guidelines talk about is that in ambulatory elderly patients, you should go ahead and shoot for those guidelines too. You don't necessarily have to relax those guidelines. There's always some concern about that, right? There's always some concern about in the very elderly, do they have difficulty with mobility? Are they on multiple other medications that might make, you know, falling more likely or orthostasis more likely? So, you know, maybe I don't need to have such tight control on them. And certainly this is the sort of thing you're going to have to look at on a case by case basis. And I think on a 
kind of lifestyle basis. If you've got a patient who's in the nursing home, who's severely demented, you know, maybe uh, less than 120 over 80 isn't the absolute goal you want to look for, or less than 130 over 80, you know, so I, this is obviously a, a patient case by case basis sort of thing. But I think in general, the thought certainly among many of the, the physicians I work with is that, well, gee, if, if you're older, you know, we don't have a lot of data showing that there's a benefit here in intensive blood pressure control in these patients, maybe it's best if we just kind of, you know, not tempt fate as it were, and, and not have them at, at a very tight control. And that's where this study came out um, that was just published in Lancet. Very interesting study. And it's part of the blood pressure lowering treatment trialist collaboration, which is a mouthful, BPLTTC, which I don't know which one's easier to say, basically. But basically, this is just a conglomeration of trialists who are doing randomized control trials in pharmacology for blood pressure lowering. And so basically, you know, of leading researchers in blood pressure control who've all kind of said, hey, you know, we have the ability to pool all our data together and look at much bigger cohort that might give us more information on answers to questions in treatment of, of hypertension that you wouldn't normally be able to do with a single randomized control trial. And that gives us, you know, the ability to look at a lot more information without having to go through the expense and time of doing another RCT. And that's basically what this paper is. They took this data from multiple randomized control trials in this collaborative and basically a gigantic participant level data meta-analysis. So they were able to actually do, because they had the individual data from each one of the studies, they were able to do a meta-analysis at the patient level, not just the outcome level. I mean, and, and I think that, you know, as a reminder, that's, I'd say probably 95% of the meta-analyses that are published and, and ones I read certainly are the ones where they basically took the results from a study. So they took papers, they read the results of the study, and then did meta-analysis at that level data. But because this was part of a collaboration of multiple studies, they were actually able to go down to the patient level, again, hopefully decreasing the incidence of, of bias and, and confounders doing that. And, and obviously, almost like having one gigantic, you know, RCT, basically, because you're able to go down to the patient level, basically. So in this study, what they wanted to do was they wanted to take a look at several outcomes. And so one of the things they wanted to do was take a look at RCTs of pharmacologic blood pressure lowering treatment in patients with at least 1,000 patient years following up in each randomly controlled group. And so, and they wanted again to, to bring all these together in a meta-analysis. And what they did in the study then is they wanted to look at outcomes. They wanted to look at type and timing of events, as well as the ages of the patients in the study and their baseline blood pressure measurements. And then what they wanted to do is design a, a meta-analysis that accounted for a lot of these potential confounders and come out with outcomes as far as blood pressure control and different levels of blood pressure control, as well as different age quintiles. And so they looked at, you know, 50 to 55, you know, 55 to 60, et cetera, et cetera. And they looked at the influence of blood pressure control and age, as well as addressing some of these confounders and looking at an outcome. In this, in this case, the primary outcome in the study was defined as a composite of fatal or non-fatal stroke, fatal or non-fatal myocardial infarction, ischemic heart disease or heart failure causing death or requiring hospital admission. So they wanted to take a look at taking all these patients, looking at the different levels of blood pressure control and their different ages and seeing uh, what the benefit, if any, was there. Secondary outcomes were all cause death and each component of the primary outcome, how they designed the trial, because of course, you're talking about multiple different types of RCTs, is that they had two groups and they labeled the group of intervention and comparator for placebo controlled trials. The placebo was considered the comparator and the active group was the intervention. 
intervention, when studies were comparing different drug classes, the group in which the blood pressure reduction was greater, so whatever arm had the drug that had the greater blood pressure lowering, uh, would be considered the intervention, and all the other treatment groups would be considered comparators. And then trials that compared more intense versus less intense strategies were classified as the intervention versus comparator groups as well. Um, certainly, if you want to do a deep dive into taking a look at their data, and I think for a study like this, that certainly makes sense. Uh, you can certainly take a look at the study itself and the supplemental material with the study. We'll have a link to the paper, to the citation on our show notes. So then again, they classified into patients basically into, into five groups based on age at baseline. So younger than 55, 55 to 64, 65 to 74, 75 to 84, and 85 years or older. And then again, looked at different blood pressure lowering effects, less than 120, 120 to 129, 130 to 139, or 140 to 149, or 150 to 159 um, uh, for systolic blood pressure, basically. So that's that's how I did this. So we're talking about a paper that is attempting to answer, I think, a very important question, which is taking a look at levels of blood pressure control. And I, I think with, with an eye particularly toward blood pressure control in the elderly and very elderly and trying to see if there's a benefit there and doing this very elegantly, in my opinion, by doing a gigantic patient participant level data meta-analysis of randomized control trials from a conglomerate of investigators who are bringing all their data to do that, basically. And so an elegant way to kind of answer some of this question without having to do a what would end up being, I'm sure, a, you know, 50 to 100,000 patients sort of sort of randomized control trial in, in this study. So basically, there are 52 randomized trials in this collaborative. Uh, they excluded only one study because they didn't report an outcome of interest. So they basically ended up in this meta-analysis with 51 trials comprising over 350,000 patients. So obviously, no way to do that type of study as a simple RCT in the real world. Taking a look at baseline characteristics, again, there's going to be some discrepancy just because these were different studies kind of brought together, but on the whole, baseline characteristics were pretty similar between the different age groups, but on the whole, across the board, uh, the, the study had more men than females in it. Uh, mean blood pressure was somewhere between 150 and 158, depending on the age quintile you were looking at. The majority of these patients seem to have blood pressures kind of in the one third to 150 range, 160 range, basically. Body mass index was similar across the board, somewhere between about 26.4 to about 28.3. To comorbidities were actually, other than diabetes, wasn't seemed to be a whole lot of difference. There were some quintiles where diabetes was much more common um, in patients who were 55 and to 64 and 65 to 74. About 32% of those patients had diabetes, where only about 16% of patients uh, in the other groups seemed seem to have diabetes as well. Most of the other diseases seem pretty similar. As far as previous use of non-study medications, um, they were, again, again relatively similar across the board. I think, interestingly, the percentage of patients with lowering medications, there were some differences, as you might imagine, as patients got older. So when they looked at the far high end quintile of, of greater than 85 years old, a significantly lower number of patients were on that. And I don't think that's all that surprising as, as patients do get older. I think de-prescribing some of these medications is, is certainly, and again, on a case-by-case -case basis, certainly reasonable to think about. And it's not surprising that a lot of these patients just don't stop, just stop taking these medications as time goes on. Any platelet medications, uh, kind of something similar, though, interestingly, about 25% of patients over age 85 were still taking antiplatelet medications. So, so what did they find as far as the outcome? And again, remember, they took a look at different age groups, so less than 55 and then kind of 10 years above that, and then took a look at the primary outcome in the intervention arm versus the comparator arm. And pretty much across the board, they found a small but statistically significant decrease in the primary outcome in the intervention arm in every single age group except the group age 85 
five and older. And that's probably only because in that group, their numbers were relatively low. So they're probably underpowered to show a difference of one, if one existed, but it remains the fact that the odds ratio for, for the primary outcome was 0.99 there. And it did cross one. So it didn't reach statistical significance, but pretty much every other age group found a significant decrease in this primary outcome of, of cardiovascular events, uh, stroke events, and uh, heart failure as well. So in these studies, it seemed that pretty much no matter what your age, again, right up to that 85, and again, they didn't find the difference in 85 or older in these other groups, they did find a statistically significant improvement by more intensive blood pressure control than less intensive blood pressure control. So then like all meta-analyses do, they broke things down a million ways from Sunday and did forest plots based on all that. And, you know, again, it's, you know, with these kind of numbers, you probably can, I think, glean some information from some of this information because you have huge numbers of patients in this meta-analysis. But, you know, again, pretty much in general, what they found was, again, across the board, uh, when you took a look at the individual outcomes, you know, whether it was major cardiovascular events, whether it was stroke, whether it was ischemic heart disease, whether it was heart failure, most of those showed a benefit by more intensive blood pressure control compared to the comparator, the, the standard, basically. All-cause death uh, was a little bit harder, but again, those are, are usually smaller numbers, and probably there wasn't enough power to show a difference if, in fact, one existed. And then they, you know, because they were taking a look at, at different blood pressure cutoffs, again, they took a look at that. There's some differences as you go through things, but on the whole, in most cases, more intensive blood pressure management, so blood pressures of, you know, again, less than 130 seem to have a a continually progressive benefit across the board, Um, certainly in most ages, again, until you start getting above the age 85, or there was no difference across the board, again, probably because the numbers were relatively low. So, you know, in the end, what I kind of took away from this was that there shouldn't be kind of a strict age cutoff for intensive blood pressure control in patients. And I mean, I'd hope to think that people don't do that anyway. They just don't say, well, you know, you're 80. So, you know, why do we need to control your blood pressure anymore? But I think this gives us some evidence to suggest that in fact, you know, that intensive blood pressure control, especially in the ambulatory patient who's doing pretty well, seems to be uh, quite beneficial in decreasing cardiovascular outcomes. But I'm not a cardiovascular pharmacist. and I'm the first to admit that. So again, I am honored to have Dr. Davis with with me, who I know has read the study intently and acts as part of her practice. So Dr. Davis, again, welcome uh, to Game Changer. What do you think of this study and kind of give me your pros and cons and how you are thinking about doing, uh, implementing this information in your practice? Thank you so much again for having me. And you've done a really nice job of covering a study that I would describe similar to you in it being elegant, robust, and validating for many of the things that we've known, but perhaps felt apprehensive to move forward in our practice. One of the things that I do when I'm reading a study is I go and I read editorials about the study or about studies that are included in meta-analyses to get kind of the lay of the land. And the Me too. <laughs> yeah. And when I was doing that this time around and preparing for this um, podcast, I was really struck by a similar concept that was brought up by the editorials from many of the key studies that were included in this meta-analysis namely the SPRINT study, the newer study that was done out of China called the STEP trial. Mm -hmm. We talked about the concept that maybe we should get rid of the term hypertension because hypertension um, is not necessarily a disease as much as it is a surrogate marker for multimorbidity and ways that we can approach reduction in risk. My analogy to this would be the misnomers that we have in practice that sometimes we perpetuate, even though we probably shouldn't. Things like baby aspirin 
well, we really shouldn't give babies aspirin, but yet we tell them. <laughs> exactly, yes. Or that uh, anticoagulants are blood thinners. In fact, your blood is no thinner on one of those drugs than anything else. And I think it puts some uh, misconceptions and perception, uh, perceptions in people's mind that take them to a negative place. Similar to the concept of hypercholesterolemia. Like really, it's not if someone has high or low cholesterol, it's not dichotomous. It's on a spectrum. Right. If someone declared themselves by having an MI and needing a four vessel bypass, they clearly have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and it doesn't quite matter where their LDL is, we need to lower it. And so this meta-analysis that is incredibly robust, it was 358,000 patient level or individual patients that were included here, um, shows us that even at a blood pressure a starting pretreatment blood pressure less than 120, reducing the blood pressure by five millimeters of mercury across every single age range. And I agree that the age range greater than 85, we don't have as much data because the group was smaller, but across every single age range at a blood pressure starting less than 120 to reduce it by five millimeters of mercury, you reduce major adverse cardiac vascular events, including cardiovascular, dope, cardiovascular death, stroke, and MI. That's really, really big news. And that should remind us that we should double down on blood pressure control. From a pharmacist perspective, I do manage complex of blood pressure in my practice. As a matter of fact, yesterday in clinic, I was asked to manage a patient who has both neurogenic orthostatic hypotension and hypertension. And <laughs> blood pressures are ranging from 80 systolically to 190 systolically. Yeah, those those, those, <laughs> yeah, those patients give me headaches. Uh, I mean, literally and figuratively, whenever I encounter them in my practice, tell my residents and my students that there's probably no more complex patients to manage than the patient with severe orthostasis with supine hypertension. They're just very challenging. So, so, so we got fludrocortisone and hydralidine. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the things that we're doing. And so, I mean, this was an 89-year-old patient. Talk about wow. in this range of like, what can you do for her? Yet something we have to think about is not just the um, quantity of life, but the quality of life. So I think that that was something else that came out of this study is that we've really got to think about what is um, what does our patient want and um, how healthy are they in, in terms of multimorbidity? Um, I was encouraged by this um, study to say that I can encourage patients to say that it's not that we just want your blood pressure close to the goal of 130 over 80. We want it consistently below that goal. And a study like this shows us that that is in fact true. And so when I have patients and I'm talking to them about blood pressure and they ask me what's their goal, I don't say to them anymore less than 130 over 80. I say, I'd like your, your blood pressure to be consistently between 110 and 130. Mm -hmm. I want every reading to be between 110 and 130 over 60 to 80 to give them like solid footing on where it is so that when they come in and, and they don't show me that their blood pressure log is improved, but it's still 136 over 82. I'm like, we're getting closer but we still have more work to do. Interesting. Yeah, that's a fascinating construct to, to consider. My guess is, you know, you're probably sure you're dealing with some very challenging patients with high blood pressure. In my world, just as kind of a general internal medicine guy, you know, I mean, certainly clinical inertia is always a huge problem. And one wonders if that kind of construct of saying, the next time you show up in doctor's office, we want your blood pressure to be at less than X to say, look, here's the range we're shooting for. And we, and we want you to be under that range as much as we possibly can. One wonders if that helps change the construct of clinical inertia for the primary care doctor. What do you think about that? I think it would because I think it gives us the power to do more because I think you're right. Clinical inertia is a big deal and our providers are really tasked to 
do a lot of things in a very short period of time. Right. Many of our providers are not just being asked to look at their blood pressure. They're being asked to look at their blood pressure, their lipids, their thyroid, their diabetes management, and also on their mental health, right? Like that's a huge wide uh, spread of things that they're being asked to to work with. And they're lucky if they get five or 10 minutes with a patient to be able to manage all of those things. So I keep giving patient a a, a range and then starting to add up on their home blood pressure uh, log of, you know, the last 10 measurements that were done, how many were within the goal range? You know, if less than 40% of those were within the goal range, even if they were close, we can still push through and do some more. And so those are some of the ways that I've tried to help encourage the providers that I work with as a group of cardiologists and also encourage the patients to show that we are making progress and we can start um, working towards not just a single isolated number, but on a spectrum. Excellent. Yeah. Appreciate that idea. And that's something I'm going to have to pitch to my uh, internists because that's a fascinating way to to think about things that actually might change some minds as far as, you know, Hey, that they were, they were on goal last time they were here. So let, you know, let leave them be. So you mentioned the patient that you had just discussed again, a challenging patient was 89. I'm assuming you see a fair number of patients who are, I mean, again, I, you know, I don't want to label things, but, you know, over age 85, most people would consider very elderly. In your experience, how has tight blood pressure control gone over with them, with their families and all that in general? Has it been successful in your practice? So I think I have a biased viewpoint because the patients that are being referred for me for management are patients who are either the cardiologist has a strong urge to want to control their blood pressure better, or they're asking for improved blood pressure control, which is the reason for the referral. Mm. So I'm seeing a group of people who are going to be highly motivated to have this strict management done. So I think I'm biased towards thinking that there isn't an issue as much with pushing the blood pressure down. I would say that if we just survey patients in general, there are some patients who would say, you know, I'm happy with where I'm at and I don't want to be on more medication, right? Right. Pharmacy is a really big issue. And that was one of the limitations of this study that the authors point out in that um, this, because of the randomized trials and the exclusion factors for those individual trials that got put into the meta-analysis were present, patients who had multimorbidity or were on polypharmacy or who had heart failure um, before study entry were not included in this meta-analysis. So there's more work to be done. And they point out that there's an ongoing um, research based on this grouping um, of studies that are done with these collaborations called the ATTEMPT trial, which is the antihypertensive treatment evaluation in multimorbid and polymedicated patients. And I think that that is really going to help inform us on what to do in those particularly complex patients, even if they're younger. You know, if you're on more than 15 medications, where does push come to shove in terms of how many medications a patient can physically manage, take, afford, and that avoid drug interactions and side effects? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then again, it's certainly a balancing act because as you point out, almost nobody just has hypertension. They almost always have comorbidity. So it'll be very interesting to see how that study comes out and informs what goes on. And, um, you know, I don't know if there's going to be an update to the AHA guidelines. It'll be interesting to see, you know, will they adopt? I'm not sure many, uh, at least the primary care docs I know are going to be jumping up and down about having the whip cracked against them some more to say, you know, no, even lower, no, even lower, you know, sort of thing. One wonders if, if they can adopt a more, like, as you pointed out, more of a, you know, okay, let's go away from the number and say either yes or no, and more trying to say, you know, over time, can we keep you consistently in this range without side effects, 
with your ability to manage the medications without drug interactions, with your ability to afford medications, which fortunately in the world of high blood pressure is usually done, but not always, because again, people with fixed incomes, even you know, one more medication may be the difference for them. So, I mean, I agree with you. There, there's a whole bunch of, of issues that has to be dealt with. Any last thoughts you have about the paper or, or things you'd like to kind of wrap up with? Yeah, a big push, I would say, is to say that this burden shouldn't fall strictly on the back of the physician providers. This needs to be an interprofessional discussion, and we need to include nutritionists, uh, physical therapists, um, tobacco treatment specialists, um, and mental health providers as well. Like This isn't just on the back of PCPs or cardiologists or nephrologists or endocrinologists. Um, all of us should be doing this and lifestyle changes are going to make a big difference as well. So if you have a provider who doesn't want to lean into more aggressive pharmacologic care, perhaps that's where a pharmacy can step up and say, what problems are you having managing this patient's blood pressure? And how can I adjunctively help you with your patients, whether it's nutrition management, tobacco cessation, adopting the DASH diet, uh, lowering or educating or lowering on sodium intake, increasing potassium rich food um, intake, getting on combination pills. Maybe it's a pill burden issue. So, we, you know, there's a couple of drugs out there like Xforge, HCT and Tribenzor, which have a thiazide a DHP calcium channel blocker and an ARB all in combination. Perhaps if we did, you know, uh, low dose therapy on three different drugs, we could get a lot more traction with a single drug per day and help uh, reduce pill burden. So I think there's some creative ways to get better control without necessarily always saying you have to lay it on thicker with more drugs at higher doses. Absolutely. And it's ironic you're, you're mentioning this because uh, we actually just recorded a Game Changers uh, last week, but uh, the uh, other recent study that was in the last that looked at the quarter poly pill, the quad pill of four different antihypertensives of very low doses. And as you point out, was actually much more effective. And then monotherapy at a regular dose at getting people in that study, their goal blood pressure. So yeah, excellent. I totally agree with that. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Davis. I appreciate your time. I'm, I know it's fall semester, so I'm sure you're as busy as I am running around with your head chopped off between teaching classes and managing a practice. So thank you very much for your expertise. I hope sometime to bring you back on and tap your expertise for another cardiovascular topic. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great podcast. I hope people enjoy it. Yeah, thank you very much for, again, for your expertise and your time. That's it for this week's Game Changers. Thanks again for listening. We will talk to you next week again. Uh, thanks again for joining us for Game Changers. Until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening in. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes below and check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com. We curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine and then deliver it to you. Join today and connect your learning to practice.